You are listening to the Tech Heads F1 podcast with Bryson, Molly, and Dr. Ops. Welcome back to the Tech Heads F1 podcast. I am your host, Bryson Sullivan, joined by my excellent co-host, Molly Oxer and Dr. Obbs. How are we today, guys? Doing great today, Bryson. It was a great last race of the season. I have to say I'm looking forward to the break. Time to take some time off. Yeah, I'm cold. So for anybody unaware, winter rolled into Detroit with a pretty big vengeance. So it's very cold and windy here. But uh, I've been staying warm and enjoyed the last race of the season and uh, look forward to some time off, but also kind of getting ready to see what the off season and next season will hold. Yeah, I think it's been a very impressive season. We had a slew of technical innovations that came as a result of the emphasis on ground effect aerodynamics and the racing is also quite good. So I would say overall, we had a really great season. And believe it or not, we are actually celebrating a small milestone for this podcast. This is the 10th episode in our series. So congratulations for that. Our guest for this week's episode is Mike Law, who is the head of vehicle dynamics at McLaren Racing. Welcome to the studio, Mike. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us. We do have a set of questions to ask you. Some of them may surprise you, some of them may not, but I think we should just get right into it. To begin with, can you talk to us a little bit about how you got into Formula One, where that journey really started for you and how it became to the point of becoming a a vehicle dynamicist, but what were some of the key points along your journey and what led you to the role you're in today? Uh, Yeah, of course. So I actually spent quite a lot of my childhood in the USA. And I think that's where my love of all things four wheels uh, really started doing things like playing 8-bit computer games, racing games on my family's first computer, uh, building tracks for Hot Wheels cars, that sort of thing. It, It actually took me a little bit of time to find F1. I probably preferred the look of the supercars and road cars of the time. But when when my family moved back to the UK, there was still free-to-air coverage of the races on ITV, and we'd often spend Sunday afternoons watching those. And this was in the uh, Schumacher Hackinen era. I think I became a McLaren fan because uh, I preferred the West livery of the time over the the red Ferrari. Uh, so I think after that, there were plenty of years getting up at 2 a.m. watching races in Australia, trying to get um, as much uh, much information on on the cars as I could. But uh, I think even then it was it was just a hobby, really. I didn't really see uh, how it could become a career. There was no experience of the industry in my family or anything like that. And uh, it was probably only when I received a, an Arkwright Engineering Scholarship from the Small Peace Trust, and that was towards the end of my time at high school, that I, I really thought it might be an option to you know go and get a job at working with cars. And then I went to Loughborough University Uh, And I studied automotive engineering and I tried to focus on the modules that I thought would be what an F1 team might be looking for, let's say. Uh, I was also part of the Formula Student team for three years. I think it's FSAE in the US. But again, it wasn't, probably wasn't till I got the call from Williams offering me a a one-year contract that I ever thought I'd be working in F1. But that was that and, and the rest is history. Awesome. So what about vehicle dynamics specifically interested you that kind of 
took you on the journey that you've found yourself on and where you are today? So I guess when I was a kid, uh, all my favorite cars were, were sort of the, the most powerful ones with the biggest engines, the uh, you know highest top speed, that sort of thing. Because, you know, when you're, when you're nine and 10, that's the kind of thing you, uh, yeah, you get drawn to. Uh, and you'd often find yourself watching Top Gear or, or something like that. And Jeremy Clarkson would be complaining about terrible handling of these cars and or poor ride or or something like that. And when you're that age, you, you kind of watch that and think, you know, what do what do those things mean? You know, there's no no numbers for for those in in the stats in the magazines. And uh, you know, how can you dismiss these these amazing cars just on on the basis of that? So maybe it was it was watching my favourite cars kind of going through that treatment that was uh, there was some sort of mysticism around ride and handling and subjects like that that maybe drew me to it. And then, but I guess now I'm a, a bit older. One of the uh, I think I see vehicle dynamics as one of the areas where you deal with the whole car, uh, and there aren't too many of those. Uh, I think race engineering is probably the other one, but that's that's got a lot of traveling and late nights. So uh, uh, I've, I've stayed away from that. And I think all the, all the forces from different areas of the car arrive in, in, in our department, really. So aerodynamics, the, the forces from the tires, powertrain, uh, the suspension. This is where all of those things turn into the performance of the car. Uh, and I think that's that's probably covers why I'm drawn to it. Mike, that's a perfect segue actually for our next question, how everything really kind of comes together, because one of the key topics of discussion this year in 2022 was around porpoising. And initially everybody thought, hey, this is just purely an aerodynamics issue, but it, the solution actually turned out to require knowledge of dynamics as well, the car dynamics, suspension dynamics. Can you explain a little bit that intersection between where the aerodynamics and the vehicle dynamics come together? And then follow-up question to that would be a lot of the suspension tricks were kind of taken away a bit um, this year compared to previous years. And and could that simplified suspension have contributed to the issue? So I think when it comes to porpoising, it's probably worth spending a second just talking about the ride modes of the car. So these are kind of the, the shapes that, that the car will make when they hit a disturbance in the road could be going over a bump or a curb or something like that and I think you can think of it as a similar way in a similar way to playing a guitar string so if you disturb the guitar string and you, you pluck it it vibrates in a particular way and the car's not really any different to that and when we talk about the body modes of the car we're normally talking about heave pitch and roll primarily so heave is is the bouncing of the car uh, or the body of the car on both axles in phase uh, pitch uh, we we normally describe as anti-phase movement or uh, of the chassis sort of bouncing up and down on the front and rear axles so as the front goes up the rear is coming down and then roll is similar but just about the the, the longitudinal axis of the car so as, as the left hand side of the car is is coming up the right hand side is going down and so the ride of the car is usually made up of a combination of those those three modes and I think the interaction with the aerodynamics is always there. And as the car is changing attitude, so the body is changing attitude, the aerodynamic load on the body is varying as well. And, and sometimes that's good. Uh, there are gradients in the map that can be stabilizing. So they, they act to damp out the motion of the body. Uh, not a lot, but, you know, every little helps sometimes. And then, you know, sometimes those could be very bad and actually amplify 
the modes uh, that you naturally get through ride. And uh, porpoising is is definitely one of the bad ones. You know, it, it amplifies the uh, the heave and pitch modes primarily, and it's it's worst at high speeds because that's where the aerodynamic loads on on the car are greatest. I think what's what's quite interesting is because it's it's occurring at, at very high speed, and that's a time where the car is is predominantly limited by the power of the engine rather than the grip of the tires. You can tolerate a certain amount of porpoising and when you're looking at how you develop the car, if you've got a, a, a mechanism for adding adding uh, load to the car, for example, even if it causes more porpoising, you might decide that that's a, a worthwhile trade and, and it will make the car go quicker. I mean, it's definitely disturbing for the drivers and uh, I can completely imagine it's not in their best, best interest to pursue an aerodynamic uh, direction like that. But I think you can because you can have a car that suffers from porpoising that is still very competitive, it's not always that you'd move away in a different direction to a sort of an aero development direction that, that can promote porpoising. But that's, I think that's for, you know, clearly for individual teams to decide. And I think when it comes to the, the regulation change, I, I think you're right, we have lost some systems. The suspensions are, are a lot simpler now, but it's probably quite hard to get away from the effect of the tire in all of this because the tire is such a large contribution to the total suspension compliance of the car i think even if you you sorted out all your internals exactly how you wanted uh, i think you'd probably still have porpoising on on these aerodynamic regulations it's quite interesting that we're talking about this because this problem has proven to be so recalcitrant it was such a, a stubborn feature early on in the season and then teams seem to really find progress with it, and it seemed to reduce significantly with the introduction of Technical Directive 39 and the aerodynamic oscillation metric. But now in Abu Dhabi, in the final race of the season, we were starting to see it creep up again as teams were sort of putting on more downforce and things. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon to track over the course of the season. It was interesting to me to hear you talk about how you can still have competitive cars with porpoising, but it's the drivers that don't like it because I think that there are case studies in WEC and IMSA with endurance racing that are exactly like that. And I, it was kind of like a, a light bulb moment of like, oh, hey, actually, that's that's a common thread where you can be really competitive and bounce around, but it's really going to limit you're limited by the driver because they can't handle and make decisions as they're getting rattled around it it goes into the human factor side of it so it was just like an interesting connection that i was able to kind of put together it's interesting we've used it as an interview question before now where we talked about why why cars with with porpoising aren't you know aren't all the ones all at the back of the grid and and yeah it, it just comes down to because if you're if you're power limited rather than grip limited when when it's happening then you don't really lose any performance from it exactly. I, I, there's there's definitely occasions like in very high speed corners where it can be damaging and lose grip but yeah not all formula one circuits have have many corners like that one of the things that was also different for the 2022 season was the introduction of the weight limit being slightly different than it was before i think we ended up at 798 kilograms if the <laughs> if the three kilograms for the floor stays were included but teams had difficulty meeting that target certainly early on in the season, and I imagine some teams still have difficulty meeting that weight limit. As a vehicle dynamicist, can you talk a little bit about the critical ways in which overall weight and also weight distribution impact car performance and why it's so important to the dynamics of the car? 
I think weight or, or mass is, is very simple. It's all about Newton's second law, really. Uh, F equals ma. Whenever m gets bigger and F stays the same, all your accelerations get smaller. So because the forces that you can generate from the car, so the aerodynamic forces, forces in the tires are always kind of the same, extra mass just reduces the amount of acceleration that's possible on your car. And, and there we're talking about longitudinal acceleration, so away from the, uh, the race start, for example, or the centripetal acceleration that you need uh, whilst, whilst going around corners. So extra mass is, is pretty much universally bad. The weight distribution effect is, is slightly more nuanced than that, I think. Until relatively recently, it was one of the primary mechanisms for, for helping to tune car balance uh, alongside uh, things like your mechanical balance. So the, uh, the ratio uh, that you transfer weight across each axle, the aerodynamic balance, differential or, or the brake balance. Now there's quite a narrow window that uh, you have to put your weight distribution within. Uh, if you're if you want to run at the the minimum weight and, and as for the effect it has i think this is reasonably often misunderstood so particularly if you look at an amount of bmw advertising uh, over the last few years where they've always talked about having perfect 50 50 weight distribution companies like porsche understand the weight distribution away from this level is no barrier to a good handling car and if you want to talk about it technically you can talk about the understeer gradient a quantity that's often talked about in vehicle dynamics, of which weight distribution is one element and the tyre cornering stiffness balance is the other. So by tyre cornering stiffness, we mean the rate that the tyre gains load as uh, lateral slip on the tyre increases. And we need to match the weight distribution to the cornering stiffness balance or move away from it in, in a way that's controlled too far forward on, on your weight distribution, you, you end up with a car that's too stable, so you can't get it to turn into corners, too rearward, and uh, the car becomes less stable. Sort of classically speaking, you should be able to end up with a car that spins in a straight line if you get that value completely wrong. I think my first boss in F1 taught me a good trick for guessing the weight distribution of a, of a particular car. Basically, if you look at the relative tire widths front to rear axle, and because cornering stiffness scales roughly linearly with tire width, you should be able to kind of back calculate the weight distribution from those. Uh, and I think a good example of this is the, the Delta Wing sports car that was around in, in sports car racing relatively recently. I mean, that car had four inch wide front tires, much, much wider on, on the rear. Yeah, just, a, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, car was exactly. wild. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, it was... It's, it was an excellent study in vehicle dynamics, I think, because it shows that even with those four inch wide front tires, if you position them far enough from the CG, you can still generate a, a reasonable yaw moment that helps you turn into all the corners. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's definitely impossible to make that work with a more forwards weight distribution. But I think that car demonstrated. I, I think Ben Bowlby also did the, uh, the Nissan sports prototype that's kind of had a similar principle a bit in the opposite direction later in his career and so yeah definitely interesting case studies in vehicle dynamics those two cars yeah just before molly gives her question i had a brief follow-up i i think the importance of weight distribution was really impressed upon me when i saw teams starting to relocate their entire drink system on their car to the nose of the car and this is something that you don't assume is all that much weight to begin with but it's really the product of the weight and the distance to the center of gravity 
that really matters in the weight distribution. And maybe it's not that much mass, but if you can put it in the extreme forward part of the car, it could actually make a big impact. Absolutely. Uh, the other thing we've seen is is ballasted front wings as well. Uh, front wings that take you know two mechanics to lift them onto the car because uh, you want to use those to get weight as far forward as you can. So we talked a little bit about tires and we're going to keep talking about tires. So there's been a lot of discussion about getting the tires into the working windows. Could you discuss setup factors that could be engineered into the car that could impact tire heating, pressures, cambers, tow, uh, different characteristics from a vehicle dynamic side that could be designed in? Yes, of course. So it's probably worth touching on what the working range is and, and why it's there and why that it's so beneficial to stay within it. So like most materials, the properties of rubber change a great deal with temperature. When they're very cold, the rubber is, is just like a solid. It's rigid, it's brittle, but too far on the other end, you know, it becomes more like a, a fluid or a liquid. And uh, clearly either extreme is pretty bad for a racing tire. And, and this working range is something that, that can be targeted in the, uh, in the design stage of the compound. Uh, and it's targeted towards the, the temperature you expect to run, which is, which is a function of the ambient conditions and the duty cycle that you're putting through the tire. And, and the tire designers have what's known as the uh, well, a metric known as the glass transition temperature that they can play with to get the working range ex exactly where they want it for the Formula One tires. The, in, in an F1 tire, the, the glass transition temperature is a good deal higher than it is for a road car. Obviously, the, the F1 tires are, are usually running a lot hotter and uh, you, you rarely have to race in snow and ice. So better that the, uh, the road tire can cope with those conditions. Uh, and then it, it kind of explains why we have tire warmers as well. Uh, it's not that heating the tires gives them more grip exactly. It's that without them, you can't get the tire properly into the working range for the outlap and the push laps. If you look at an F2 qualifying session, for example, where they don't use tire warmers, the drivers have to you know, do a, a few warm-up laps quite gently, getting bringing the tires into the working range that with tire warmers, you completely do away with the need for but yes yeah, so it, I think when it comes to the sort of hot versus cold question you'd ideally keep the tires at the bottom end of that working range because there's more grip there uh, too hot you, you reduce the grip in the tire and the drivers will have a, a target temperature uh, for which to start their their qualifying lap with uh, and if they if they're under this and um, the tire is too cold and the rubber will be sort of too brittle, it, you'll risk graining the tire, that sort of thing. Uh, but but too hot and it's it's just less grip. Whereas in in the race, normally you're uh, trying to keep the tires as as cool as uh, as cool as possible. There are some low duty tracks where that's not quite true, and and yeah, just so it's, it's just more grip with with the lower temperature, but also. If you keep the temperature low, you can also reduce the pressure within the uh, within the air in the tire, uh, and that has the effect of increasing your your tire contact patch area. That reduces a lot of the stresses and strains in the rubber, and just gives it a, a slightly easier time. But there, there equally there there have been occasions where it's been difficult to get the tires warm enough. If you remember the race in Turkey in 2020, it was sort of quite late in the year temperature was very cold there was a very low grip surface it was really difficult to get enough energy into the tires to uh, to really get them in into uh, into their working range and and then yes we, so you can start to 
look at mechanical means for, for increasing the temperature. So I think toe angle is a good example that you can you can look at. So uh, the toe angle is the angle between the wheel and the and sort of straight ahead when looking from above. And increasing that means you, you can scrub the tires all the way down the straights and use that as a way of, of putting temperature into the compound. You could also try uh, running at higher pressure or higher camber. And doing that just reduce, just concentrates your uh, your sort of sliding energies into a smaller mass of the tread rubber, and that that might be useful for for getting the tyres up to temperature. A camber similar to that, but we are typically limited by the kind of camber angles that you can run by regulation. Uh, and then I think by probably the the one that gets played with the most is is just the cooling configuration on each each wheel. So obviously the the brakes are pretty good source of heat and and require cooling as well so there's plenty of heat and and plenty of cooling air that end up around the, the sort of wheel assembly and and if you direct that air to different parts of the the tire or, or parts of the wheel parts of the brakes you can uh, have some degree of control over where your tires stabilize at so yeah there, there's there's a few means that you can use to to get the tires in in the temperature you want and I think it's just about choosing your favorite one on the day and yeah, seeing how, how you can keep them cool. Just very briefly, I can't hear us talking about toe and, and the tires without thinking about Mercedes DAS system that they had in, in 2020 and it's, it's controversial introduction and its purpose, but it's, it's precisely for the reasons that you mentioned is to keep the tires in the window and to potentially improve how easy it is to warm them up on an outlap or on a safety car restart, something like that, which is pretty, pretty cool. I was going to say, Mike, as you were talking there, my mind was probably going a million different directions because there's so many things to expand on there. You know, one of the really interesting things, you know, we talk about tire warmers and, and we talked about the, the we don't have the blown wheel nuts anymore, right? So it just becomes so much more of a challenge to get the tires into the working window. We've talked about that a bit. Another terminology that, you know, during one of Mercedes debriefs that I can't remember, Bryson, you might have to help me here, who was talking about it, but they were talking about hysteretic heating and they were talking about kind of as a rubber sort of like molds and deforms and moves, like you generate these internal temperatures and things like that. And one of the things that I thought about when I thought about porpoising and, and just this sort of up and down oscillation movement, I was thinking, wow, could you actually generate some heat in the tires through hysteretic heating by by porpoising? So that might be like maybe a, a side effect that could be a positive side effect, but... I'm sure the drivers would love you for that. <laughs> There's a bunch of teams that are like, write that down, write that down. <laughs> laughing nervously is what the drivers are doing. <laughs> Excellent. I, I do have two quick questions. They're semi-related to each other. The first one actually has to do with tire tests. It has to do with Pirelli's tire test that they are doing during FP1 you know, sessions, but also young drivers tests that they do after the season is over. Just briefly before I have my other question, do you have any thoughts on how the information gathered from that feeds into what you're doing in your everyday analysis? Or is it just because we're doing something for 2023, you don't really have any, doesn't have any impact on what you're doing for the car that particular weekend? In terms of the, the tire testing for that weekend, I think the, the, the regulations are, are sort of reasonably restrictive around what you're allowed to change during those tire tests. So it's not like teams are, are going out and changing ride heights and, and setups in, in the way that they would during a, a normal session. I think that there is value on the team side for kind of keeping things as 
uh, as consistent as possible. You, you get to learn uh, about the characteristics of the tyre relative to what you've experienced on, on the previous year's tyres. So yeah, it's, uh, I think they, they're largely data gathering exercises for, for Pirelli, but there's, there's plenty of a, a good, a well-conducted test. Maybe you give yourself a bit of a head start into the following year. Random follow-up question for my curiosity. During a race weekend, where are you usually found? Is head of vehicle dynamics someone we see usually trackside or are you back in the factory at like the control center? There's not often a, a reason to travel to the racetrack. We're very fortunate at McLaren to have uh, an excellent uh, sort of remote garage mission control facility where we can see all the data, everything that's going on with the cars. So most Fridays and Saturdays, I'll be in there watching progress. And then uh, I get to come home and, and relax a little bit, watch the race from home on a Sunday. One of the questions that's been a, a key way of teams differentiating themselves in race performance is actually pit stops. Some teams are well known as being remarkably good at pit stops. Other teams, you know, not quite so much, either in terms of average time for a pit stop or in delays. We noticed that this year, McLaren has introduced some slight modifications to their wheel gun setup potentially including some LED lights to assist the mechanics without being specific. Um, could you discuss maybe what some of the theoretical performance and or safety benefits there might be for having some kind of optical feedback system on a wheel gun? As you say, I'm, I'm probably not going to be able to discuss the, the specific system that um, uh, that you describe, but there's, uh, there's absolutely value uh, in having fast, reliable pit stops during the race you know as as you've seen through a lot of the incidents this year that overtaking is a risky thing to do and it's it's a lot of development budget goes into improving the performance of the cars to to gain time on the track but equally because pit stops can differ by maybe you know two to three seconds in the extreme cases if you find yourself in a drs train then being at the lower end of that range maybe gains you uh, two or three positions so there's there's big value in being able to deliver you know quick quick reliable stops uh, and i think the risk is of course that as the you know the the big push for performance trying to get those pit stops times down you know maybe uh, taking on more risk when when you do that you know if you release the car too early with with one uh, of the wheels not attached correctly it's it's virtually an instant disqualification and and maybe even you know a fine coming your way and and with good reason as well i think because we 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 saw incidents in in sort of the early mid 2010s where you know wheels would would come off the cars in the pit lane and and you know there's there's mechanics and, and engineers around there and you know we don't want anyone uh, getting hit by tires traveling at, at high speed uh, you know they Anyone who's tried to lift one of the rear tires knows they're they're very heavy things. And not just that, they have both rotational kinetic energy and translational kinetic energy. Both of them can can injure you. Oh, absolutely, it, do, it, it doesn't bear thinking about really. So we, we yeah. definitely don't want we don't want any we don't want to be seeing any of that. And yeah, so so I, all the development I think goes in, into the pit stops is is about getting the majority of your of your times down as far as you can whilst guaranteeing that you, you never release the car without all the wheels attached properly. Are there things outside of motorsports applications that uh, you find inspire your approach to vehicle dynamics or your overall design approach to vehicle dynamics? 
for me personally, I, th I think it's probably control engineering, which is, I guess, the science of controlling systems to hit a target. And that will cover things like climate control or, or robotics and things like that. And, and for me, there are some really interesting approaches that, that are almost sort of flipping the problem around uh, and looking at it from a different angle that, that kind of reveal themselves in uh, when, when you're sort of looking into that subject. If you, if you take sort of classical control, so equations that were being written, you know, 100 years ago or so, it's, it's all about sort of uh, turning dials, you know, moving poles around complex planes and you know trying to tune something tune the control system to, to give you what what you want but then you know there comes a point in in the history where you start talking about uh, optimal control and starting very much from the system you're controlling and, and flipping that around to to give you exactly the control law that that you want to use and the only question you then have to ask yourself is how much energy do i want to put into uh, controlling this system to, to hit a particular target and, and you know everything just kind of falls out and one of our heroes of ride I suppose in F1 is is Malcolm Smith who I, who I know you've talked about before on on this podcast as the inventor of the inerta but I suppose the reason that was necessary was that so you can uh, kind of complete the electrical mechanical analogy and start using network synthesis techniques from electrical engineering to design mechanical systems and that allows you to, to start asking things like you know given this system and and the parts i have at my disposal what's the best i can do you know what's what does what does perfect look like i suppose and it's it's i think it's an interesting way of, of looking at some of those problems and and we, we talk about it a lot in the context of ride but i think it's also useful in in the sort of lateral dynamics and handling aspects of the car as well we've had a, a great first season of a lot of changes and uh, i'm sure it's been quite exciting from your side of things but i, I guess this is more of a general question and i'll, I'll let you decide uh, how you want to how you want to answer this one so how does coming into any new philosophy, right, whether it's a new regulation or however you define it, how does coming into a new philosophy behind the car affect your approach to the dynamic design intent? And are there any things that, that stick out to you based off of your experience and knowledge? So I, I think whenever you, you come up with a new you know, big regulation change, there's a lot of value in focusing in on the basics of you know what's always been true about making cars quick and i think there's four primary areas that are largely going to dictate your finishing position in the season and and those are the the aerodynamic delivery in terms of load and drag how you can manage the tires uh, the the power of your engine and your car's overall weight so i think the the design department are largely in control of the weight the, uh, your engine supply is largely largely in control of the uh, the power output of your engine. The uh, aero group covers the the load and drag. I think what's the main one that's left for us is how we kind of treat the tires, and it's 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 quite an interesting problem, especially when it comes to uh, this uh, set of regulations, because the the tire development is kind of taking place in parallel with the the development of the car so it's it's a bit of a moving target there and you i guess you want to design the car that that gets the best 
uh, out of the tires uh, and be you know we've talked a little bit about weight distribution but that can also be uh, suspension systems and uh, and that sort of thing uh, and then I guess everything else all the other design decisions uh, that relate to the car are often more uh, opportunities for failure than they are of success really so while it's important to, to kind of get the most out of your suspension and, and ride and that sort of thing they're, they're not the kind of factors that um, that separate the front of the grid from the rear uh, typically speaking similarly you can talk about sort of steering systems and, and cooling and uh, they they can be they can be considered as a sort of more second order until they can suddenly become a problem so uh, I'm sure there are there are plenty of engineers on the grid who've, who've worked with cars that have had you know, specific problems that have really hampered their their quest to kind of get get the most performance out of a particular car so uh, it could be things like a, a particular suspension compliance that's that's really bad or a poor steering feel or uh, or a car that that has terrible ride or something like that and and these just I think end up being the, the big distractions in your development from those factors that, that really matter. Just as a, a really brief follow-up, I've been wanting to ask this question for some time and I can't pass up the opportunity. A lot of times when we talk about circuits and different circuits on the calendar, we talk about front limited circuits versus rear limited circuits. Mm -hmm. Circuits where it's really the front axle versus the rear axle that's actually being the limiting factor in determining performance. In a very brief way, could you describe maybe to someone who's heard these terms before but doesn't quite understand what they mean, what they actually mean and how they impact car setup? So I guess those terms, I think the context is probably quite important when, when answering some of those things. So where we, we can talk about front and rear limited from a sort of handling perspective, but we can also talk about front and rear limited from a sort of tire degradation and wear perspective. And I think depending on, on sort of the balance of your car and uh, and and the tires you're working with and that sort of thing uh, it can often be it, those things the specific circuits can kind of move around a little bit the the front limited circuits tend to be the ones where you spend a lot of time sort of scrubbing the front tires in in high speed corners for example with uh, with maybe sort of power limited sections so i think i think you know that that plays a big part uh, and then when we're talking about the car itself what you tend to find with formula one cars is that the uh, cars will be rear limited on on the entry to corners they'll be front limited in in the mid corner and rear limited again on on exit because the cars are, are rear wheel drive uh, and so so circuits with a lot of sort of long uh, 180 degree type corners tend to demand quite a lot of the front axle whereas cars with with sort of shorter sort of 90 degree quick change of direction they they don't have such a long mid corner phase and, and they're demanding more of of the rear axle i suppose so uh, yeah as i say it's it's kind of contextual i guess it, it can jump around a little bit in Molly's introduction of you, she mentioned that you are ahead of vehicle dynamics, but that you're also an author and you've written a book about something called the ACE thinking model and method. Could you talk to the listeners a little bit about what that is, where it came from when you were developing it and, and how to use it? Uh, yeah, of course. I think it, it sounds very strange to be uh, to be called an author, and uh, <laughs> it makes me think a little bit of of Happy Gilmore, where he uh, is saying how he's a, a hockey player, but he's playing golf today. Uh, I'm 
I'd definitely consider myself an engineer first. But, uh, well, and I think in terms of the motivation and where it came from, I think I get, I probably get quite asked quite a lot by sort of members of my family or, or extended family or uh, people who, people who I meet who, um, you know, aren't in and around the automotive industry. They'll, they'll say something like, oh, you know, you, you, you spent a lot of time at university. You got well, you're well educated and, you know, clearly you're, it's a, it's a challenging environment, but why, you know, why, why aren't you uh, doing something that's more sort of objectively useful, like, a, like being a doctor or something like that? And, uh, and you know, you, you can sort of smile. And, uh, and the, the response that I, I normally give is that I, I don't see Formula One as, as just a sport for entertainment, really. From an engineer's perspective, I think, you know, maybe it's more in the direction of sort of the space race in the 50s and 60s, where you're you're fighting against your own knowledge of, of science and engineering as much as you are sort of a competition and, and you're sort of you know always striving for for improvements and i think while while it's you know clearly largely for show um i think with with a clear goal of, of building the fastest and most reliable car uh, and the fact that we're up against such strong competition it really drives you know huge creativity and, uh, and ingenuity and and those sorts of things and my view is we we should be able to pass those things on to to other industries and um, you know other areas that are dealing with similar similar problems, and, and you know a lot of the teams know this and they've got their own subdivisions that are there to market the racing technology to to other areas where it could be useful. And you know some of these have, have there are some great examples of this. You know including things like I think doctors at Great Ormond Street Hospital, uh, which is a kids hospital in in the UK. Uh, coming and speaking to, to teams doing pit stops, learning how to develop better ways of transferring patients across wards in the hospital and that sort of thing. And I think the, the question I asked myself when when we were all sent home from work in, uh, in the pandemic was, I mean, you know, this is nice. You, uh, it's a nice answer to give to people. But what, what is it that I'm actually doing about it? Uh, you know, a lot of my stuff is, is kept under kept under sort of strict lock and key I suppose and doesn't really see the light of day outside of the Formula One uh, Formula One world so you know given that we that we were stuck at home with you know homeschooling of kids to do I thought one of the things I could I could do in that time given that there was no work to work to do was uh, was write a book that passed on what the industry has taught me as kind of as a way of giving something back hopefully uh, and and for me that the subject would would be how uh, to view the problems that we face in the world today through the lens of uh, mathematics and science, uh, and using the lessons from those subjects to to try and make things to try and improve things, make things better. Because I've, I've never done anything like this before, uh, I thought I'd, I'd try and use it as uh, an opportunity to, to raise some money for a, a charity that I've, I've already talked about, um, which is the, the Small Peace Trust. Uh, that in that even if the uh, if the book was a, a terrible failure, at least uh, some good com- could come of it. And uh, you know they do great work uh, inspiring the next next generation of engineers. So uh, I think you know that, that largely covers the motivation, I suppose. And then in terms of the the contents itself. Uh, I think the the model rests on the idea that you know everything we we take on has three things in common. Uh, it's it's for the benefit of of human beings and um, 
uh, it could be us or it, it could be you know somebody we're working for uh, and when we're, we're doing these things we're, we're performing a process um, to to kind of meet those desires uh, and that we're, we're doing it in a particular setting so uh, and I've called those um, those different elements the agent for the human beings the the control process for getting what people want and the environment for for the setting I guess I don't expect the categorization of those things to be to be particularly groundbreaking to anybody but what I hope is that you can use this as a bit of a framework for pinning different ideas from maths and science onto uh, that should help guide you towards how you you kind of want to go about doing what you're doing so when, when we talk about the agent we can talk about uh, economic or behavioral economic models for for things like human decision making uh, we can talk about reducing the outcomes of, of tasks that we do into into a single metric uh, called utility uh, and we can talk about you know other sort of quirks of human human decision making like uh, effects of delayed gratification or, or anchoring or, or, or something like that uh, and then when, when it comes to control we can obviously talk about control engineering principles uh, but that and that includes things like measurements and, and the different kinds of, of control laws that you come across you know we touched a little bit about classical and, and optimal uh, designs before uh, but but also things like experiment design uh, you know how to design experiments uh, to to tell you what you want to know uh, rather than just giving you a, a load of noise back uh, and and then finally on the environment uh, I think this includes a lot of things like systems theory but also subjects like complexity and and chaos uh, and how interacting with with other agents other human beings in the environment will lead to effects that are described in game theory and, and those sorts of things. So, so my hope is that if, if you can frame the problem in this way, according to this model, it, it helps to identify the, the key factors that stand between you and success in, in those endeavors. And hopefully it's in the book, it's not just academic formulae, but different ways of, of looking at the problem and approaching it. Mike, thank you very much for that uh, that summary. I think that's fantastic. I think something we talk about a lot on this podcast is just educating and and you know taking information and building off of that information and growing from it. And very clearly, that's why you've written this book. You know, um, I can't think. You know, I myself, I don't work in motorsports, but I work in the energy industry, and exactly everything that you've discussed is exactly the way that we also approach things in my industry. So I think a lot of these things, you know, when, and especially when you compare to such a high performance industry like motorsport, we're just, I mean, we're talking tense. I mean, it's on the razor's edge, everything you're doing. Uh, it's fantastic that you put this book together. Um, I think it can be beneficial to anyone uh, who picks it up to read it, that they can apply it in their industry as well. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I would echo that. I had a chance to pick this up before we were planning to talk to you, actually, and I finished it, and I feel like I walked away an even better problem solver than I was. And I'm I'm in the commercial or not commercial. I'm in the automotive industry as well on like the road car side. So even though we've got a similar framework and structure problem solving, I still feel like there was so much I took from that book, and it's something that. If you're problem solving just in your everyday life, I think there's something anybody can take from that. And I've actually recommended it to some friends that work in accounting and some non-engineer friends who have 
also been reading it as well and they're they're loving it so far as well oh, that's fantastic no really really pleased to hear that that's, yeah. that's great. Um, so you talked a little bit about chaos and often hand in hand with chaos is ambiguity so developing something as complex as a race car not to mention throwing in new regulations on top of it is no easy feat uh, how do you best manage ambiguity and uncertainty when you're making technical or engineering decisions? Or And uh, do you find yourself utilizing a certain framework to make those decisions? Uh, yeah, of course. So so as you say, this is something we uh, that I've, I've talked about in the book. Uh, and it's the principle that, that every idea and process uh, has uncertainty attached to it. Uh, and it could be any anything sort of as simple as uh, how much money you have to spend or how much time you have to you have to put to something. Uh, you know, we can talk about getting contractors in to do a job, how often they arrive on time and on budget. It's, uh, you know, maybe it's pretty rare, but you can still see that as a success. And, I've, you know, coming back to our application, I think the correlation of simulations is, is something that's also, you know, steeped in uncertainty. Uh, we know we're wrong. We just don't know how we're wrong or we'd, you know, or we'd fix it. Uh, and I guess going back through my education and probably seeing the ed education of, of others as well, I don't think it's something we teach particularly well. It's, uh, you know, we, we give students a formula and we, we tell them to put all the parameters in and, and, you know, out of the calculator comes an answer to like nine decimal places and the answer, and you can check that answer in the back of the book. Whereas in, in reality, you know, every parameter in, in that expression is probably uncertain and each operation you're performing compounds that uncertainty even further and I guess what we care about is if all those parameters line up on one end of their sort of range of uncertainty do we do we end up in complete failure uh, compared to our sort of um, likelihood of, of a successful outcome uh, and, and in the book I, I talk about different decision making strategies so do we want to treat it like everything will go as expected uh, in uh, in which case we'll have some results that, that come out better than we'd expect. Some results will come out worse. Uh, but it off, you know, if there's a lot riding on it, uh, often it, you can't really take the risk of, of things going badly. And you can look at a decision-making strategies like, like MaxiMin, for example, where you choose the least worst outcome of all the, all the possible options. So, uh, I mean, an example is, uh, if you had a wager where you had a 50% chance of winning $10 or uh, or, or coming and a 50% chance of winning nothing or taking $4 for certain, you know, if you take if you take the, the money for certain, you've at least guaranteed ending your decision in profit, uh, even though you've sort of sacrificed the, the chance of uh, winning a, a, a bigger amount, uh, you've also uh, guaranteed you're, you're not going to leave with nothing. You were talking about risk, and I think it's a perfect segue into our next question here. I have to apologize. It's quite a long one, but it's very important. So, so stick with me through this one. So I think engineers at their core, we're, we're risk adverse. We like to have all the information. We like to know without a shadow of a doubt that what we're deciding on is the right way. And um, 
you know, maybe in some cases, and I expect this is definitely the way that it is in Formula One, we don't have all the information, right? We have to be able to see the big picture before making a decision. What drives your approach in balancing that risk versus that reward in situations where you may not have the full picture, you may not have all the data? And um, if you don't have time sometimes to gather all of that data or all that information, what advice might you give to engineers to who are looking to break out of that risk adverse mindset and maybe take some risks i think to, to sort of set out it's i think it's very natural for uh, human beings to be risk averse and loss averse i think this is often the result that comes out when when it gets studied uh, i think that it makes good sense evolutionarily uh, I, I once heard it described as you know, on, on one end of the range of outcomes, you could be very, very happy. Uh, but on the other side, you could be dead. So <laughs> there's there's no good result that's as bad as, as uh, um, that's as good as the worst result is bad. So uh, I, yeah, I, I think it's it's very common and um, it varies from, from person to person. I've certainly worked with engineers on both sides, you know, one, uh, some that need a bit of a push to kind of, uh, you know, go go ahead and and um, follow up on what they're talking about, whereas others that, you know, can sometimes need a bit of reining in and say, you know, let's let's take our time over this one. And I think there's, you know, in, in your question, it's it's interesting because I think there's there's a bit of a contradiction in our industry sometimes where we can often spend the most time uh, looking at the things that make the least difference uh, because the 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 answer of, of where we want to push these things isn't uh, isn't very obvious and the results aren't very big but that i guess i you know the hope is that with enough of them you can make a, a sort of measurable difference to your competitiveness uh, and you know in reality what what you choose won't won't change the world necessarily but that that still doesn't mean you, you don't want the best answer from it i, I think my advice is is largely to understand the, the magnitude of the effect that you're um, that you're looking at, and and again, just just for coming back to the sound decision making principles, using ideas like uh, trades tables um, or, or utility metrics or, or things like that. Uh, often, when you when you put it in those those terms, what looks like the risky approach to start with, actually turns into the approach that it would be a risk not to, to pursue. Uh, and and I think by by doing those things, I, I think the aim is is to make sort of slow and steady progress, uh, and build build momentum without you know without risking catastrophe. And uh, you know a few years down the line, you'll find yourself uh, a lot further down the track than uh, than if if you'd uh, I guess either uh, taken the big risks or or backed away from them entirely. You know, in the, in that time, you might not have had any sort of dizzying success, but hopefully there there weren't any monumental failures either. And the I th I think there's the, but there's a lot of value in being curious and trying new things. People talk about failing fast quite a lot, and uh, I think there's 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 definitely value in that as well. I was going to say, Mike, on top of that, I think one thing that has probably made this quite a challenge is the cost cap era that's now come as well. It's like with every decision, there's a cost associated with it. And you have to weigh that cost 
against the potential benefit. I mean, and again, you know, we talk about applying these fundamentals across industries, you know, right? It's going to be the same thing, whether you're talking about a safety, a decision that you're making that might impact safety, probably maybe more in Molly's industry, a decision that you might make in your industry that affects costs associated with potential performance gains and things like that. It's a, I'm sure it's quite a challenge. Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the cost thing was always there. I mean, there's there's really a, a bottomless pit to spend, but you're absolutely right. I think the cost cap really brings those trades into focus. Uh, and, you know, having worked in in teams where there was more or less to spend, it, it, it kind of, uh, it brings you back to the, the days, you know, when, when money was hard to come by and uh, you had to choose your developments very carefully because, you know, once the money's spent, you're not getting it back. Yeah, that when you talked about slowing down sometimes and using sound decision making, it made me remember a really great piece of advice an engineer gave me when I was young in industry was sometimes to go fast, you have to go slow. And while you might not have all the time in the world by taking a step back or at least just slowing down for a second to say, okay, hang on, let's think through this. Even if it may seem slow at the time, it helps you make the best sound decision uh, as you're trying to solve that problem. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I was going to say that sounds like very sound advice. I, I think the version of that that I've received is is perfect is the enemy of good. Yep. Right. You, you can spend the rest of your natural life making something perfect, but if good will do, uh, perhaps that's actually a better solution. Going back to this question of risk aversion and talking about what people are averse to, they're averse to failure in some sense or another. And oftentimes in racing, we hear the term failure isn't an option. However, when you inevitably have an outcome that is considered a failure, do you have any thoughts on how to manage those types of failures, be they technical, non-technical you know, processes, et cetera? when they arise and how to move forward from them. One of the chapters in the book is actually called Failure is Not an Option. And it's intended as a bit of a play on words, I suppose, because the idea is, no, it's not an option. It's coming for you whether you like it or not. Uh, And I think it all comes back to the uncertainty discussion we we were kind of having earlier. It's it's absolutely possible that you design robust experiments, build build brilliant models of, of the car and other systems and go through all the recommended decision-making strategies and and you can still end up with a with a monumental failure Uh, i think i mean i think we have a very recent example with things like the entertainment industry in 2020 i mean i'm sure there are uh, companies going into that year thinking this was going to be the best one ever and maybe they got to the end end of the year without you know selling a single ticket organizing a single event Uh, and you, you, t- you know, you mentioned chaos and uh, and things like the butterfly effect, and I think it's 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 exactly that. It's these are the effects that make make planning so difficult, uh, and make the the risk of failure even greater. Uh, and and uh, you know, there's there's an example we we had this week where um, my in my team we were looking at an area that we thought we understood very well, and. Uh, the result we results we got took us completely by surprise and it, it kind of reminds you how you know how all these uncertainties kind of propagate through everything you do and 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 how little you can kind of take for granted as as kind of guaranteed learning i suppose uh, and and as for how we 
how we deal with that. I think it's important to throw away as little as possible and take as much of your as many of your experiences with you when you're you're kind of going on to different problems and that includes you know a lot of uh, taking a lot of documentation uh, and that sort of thing but but also i think there's a temptation to uh, keep let's say uh, projects that don't go as well as you'd hoped sort of under wraps uh, through the fear of you know revealing yourself to be uh, not up to the job or something like that but actually i think if, if by sort of celebrating failures and uh for the at least the reason that you've learned something when you've you've kind of been working in that project even if it's only that what you tried didn't work you're, you're still you know a little bit further down the road than you were before uh, and this leads on to things like uh making admission of mistakes a, a positive experience uh, you know clearly um, you'd rather have not made the mistake but in doing so it, you've you've got something that everything can uh, everybody can learn from and uh, and everything can can benefit from yeah and uh, maybe I'll just build off of that as well um, the, the the word failure I think can sometimes and maybe you know we, we've got listeners that are all different ages, all different disciplines. And I think there's one thing that you've, that you've said that is important is that failure is an opportunity, essentially, right? That we can look at everything as an opportunity, right? And failure is absolutely an opportunity to gain knowledge and to grow from it. I mean, we don't have to look any more than what teams have gone through this year. Obviously, you can't, you know, to comment on specifics but i think across the grid we've seen teams get it right we've seen teams get it wrong but at the end of the day um, people have learned things throughout the course of the year and failure is an opportunity is such an important thing to to really you know wrap your heads around and not being afraid to even use the word failure is important as well right that that this is a reality and it's coming for you, as you say, whether whether you like it or not. I love that. That's that's really poignant. How do you balance agility in decision making? Is it organizational agility, technical and design agility? Is this maybe with or without the application of the ACE thinking model um, rather than getting landlocked or boxed in when you're trying to make decisions? I think a lot of this comes down to investment in in the process uh, as much as as the product i suppose in, in our team if we spend all our energy uh, just looking at the car then it's likely we'll keep coming unstuck by by the same things you know the same blind spots we have in our process so you know let's say the simulations took too long or the, or the wind tunnel didn't correlate uh, maybe we're not scrutinizing data properly uh, but these things are going to give you a, a, a ceiling that you're only going to break through by by luck, I suppose. And I, I think it comes down to taking time to sort of plug gaps in that process, uh, and this will make all your future pro uh, projects more efficient. Uh, and it's uh, it's what I refer to as, as the optimization step in the model. Uh, and, and when it comes to avoiding getting boxed in, I think you can refer to problems in in maths uh, that are called sort of explore exploit problems uh, and in in the book I, I talk about the the multi-arm bandit problem where you, you go into a casino and there's lots of slot machines that you could play uh, and they've all got different odds and 
which ones do you choose to play when you don't know what any of those odds are? And uh, in, in mathematical research, this led to the creation of something called the Gittins Index. Uh, and, it's, uh, and it solves a, a particular, um, well, the, that problem with particular constraints, let's say. But it teaches you two main things in that you should be exploring a lot, even if things are going well. You know, there's a lot of value in trying something else, especially if you if you've got something that you can go back to that you know is already being successful. And you know, things that give bad results tend to reveal themselves quite fast as well. Uh, so if you you know if in the casino example you've you've got a machine that's that's uh, paying out two out two out of three times, uh, and you switch to a machine that that doesn't pay out at all over five play or three plays then it's it's quite easy to discount that and go back to where you were before I, th I think there's a lot of cases where that's true in engineering as well and then the the second point uh, that 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 index teaches you is that the more you value your long-term success so success in deep into the future the more you should be exploring right now uh, and that's just because you know, once you hit upon those those areas that, that drive a lot of success, they they pay out uh, long into the future. And, and you can swap the ideas of, of slot machines with with the different R and D projects that we could be taking part in uh, uh, today. You know, you don't necessarily know the value of these projects and what they're going to pay out. And certainly, in in my experience, you rarely end something like that. With the knowledge you thought you'd gain, but you know something related that's equally important, I suppose. So, so yeah, I think if you can ring fence the resource you need that uh, that you know will, will kind of deliver the uh, get the job done, to deliver the car at the end of the day, uh, uh, for example, and then in, you know be investing in uh, everything else in in improving the processes around that. I think that's that's probably the advice I'd, I'd give somebody looking for an answer to that. This answer you gave sparked something in my mind. You were talking about slot machines, and I'm thinking about casinos, and I'm thinking about Monte Carlo, and suddenly I'm thinking about Monte Carlo simulations. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. So as we as we sort of round out on the questions here, I'm just wondering what role do simulations play in your work as a vehicle dynamicist, kind of how long do they take <laughs> to run? I, I imagine they're much cheaper than, than CFD simulations, but could you just give a, a general flavor for how simulations help you to find performance in the car? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the probably the first thing is there's a, a wide range of, of different simulations that I'm sure will be available to, to all teams and not just not just ourselves. Uh, that will tell you different things. They'll put the car in, in different conditions and then also uh, drive the car a, a slightly different way. I mean, in the extreme, you can talk about the, the simulators that, that most teams use nowadays, uh, where the, um, the driver has control over the, the steering wheel, throttle and brakes, and the offline sort of lap time simulations where you, you take, take the driver completely away from that. Excuse me. And uh, you're using a a model of the driver to to uh, sort of help demonstrate what 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 a, what the effect of the change you've made is 
on the car in reality when when you only have a simulation i suppose uh and and you know with the different complexities and the different uh the different uses i suppose the the, the amount of time those simulations takes can can vary quite a lot i think the, the very simple car state solves are, are you know literally um milliseconds all the way up through you know you mentioned cfd simulations and it's not uh, it's not an area I use day to day, but you know those are many hours to to solve in some cases. Uh, I think what what we're experiencing and what uh, what the whole world is experiencing really is, uh, you know, as as we follow Moore's law and we we keep increasing our our computing power year on year, uh, the number of simulations that we can that we can be doing at once is is increasing very quickly. So I think when I first started out, a, a simulation study would take, uh, you know, might, that might take a, a day to do is is now, you know, uh, something that, that could be done, you know, much much more quickly, uh, and and you can cover a lot more ground and look at a lot more uh, a lot more different areas, uh, and I think that's that's only going to kind of get bigger as as, as things continue to scale. Uh, but in terms of, I mean, it's it's kind of the bread and butter of what we do really in our department. The the, the exercising of these models to to tell us more about the car, tell us more about how we should be developing, based on our understanding of of the problem and and everything that's that's kind of come in from aerodynamics and tires and and, and all those different areas. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's very interesting. It, it's it's uh, there's a very fast pace of change. Uh, and I'm sure uh, whatever I sort of answer I give today will will be completely out of date in in only a few years. <laughs> uh, well, I, I I never fail to be amazed by the sheer ingenuity and complexity of work that the engineers of old are able to do with vastly less computational power than I have access to. Oh, absolutely! So, no, and it's, c- congratulations. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's very interesting. You know, you you occasionally you, you sort of step back from the work you've done on a day, on a day and and look look at you know even before you know personal computers were something that were, were widely used in in the industry and it's, it's like you think back it's like how how did they get the car together before <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, I think you, you kind of have to trust yourself that um you know you could have picked up the skills for uh, for doing those things as as much as uh, as what we do today but it, it, yeah certainly look, looking back it feels very alien and, and we're not talking very far in the past at all well, Mike, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Thank you for answering our questions and giving us some insights, not only into what your day-to-day is like uh, as a vehicle dynamicist, but also what your uh, book is about and how we can use it in everyday situations. Do you have anything that you'd like to plug in addition to your book, or can you tell people where to find you? Yeah, absolutely. So so the book book is called Ace Thinking, Life Lessons from Engineering the Ultimate Racing Cars. And at the moment, it's available in Amazon, uh, on Amazon in all territories. Uh, hopefully, we'll uh, be able to increase the distribution to other outlets as well. But it's it's Amazon for the moment. And uh, and just to repeat, that all proceeds from uh, the sales of that that otherwise would have come to me uh, will instead go to the Small Piece Trust on uh, for this edition. And uh, they're a fantastic charity that are helping to inspire the the next generation of young engineers. Well, thanks again. We were glad to have you. Thank you very much. And yeah, absolute pleasure. And uh, very interested in, in coming back again sometime. 
Now we move on to our next segment, which is our tech focus. Today, Bryson is going to be talking about polars and aero development. All right. So we've talked a little bit, even in this episode, about the importance of the cost cap on teams development. And it suddenly becomes a challenge if you want to bring an error development that you're uncertain about. You can't actually be uncertain about it because if you do, you're wasting precious money and that has an impact on future car developments. And so you have to have a methodical and robust way to bring performance to the car that actually can be quantified. And we talked previously about the three primary tools of aerodynamic analysis, you know, CFD, the wind tunnel, and on-track testing. And the key thing I kind of want to emphasize on this is the primary benefit of CFD is that it allows you to test a large number of geometries relatively quickly on the span of hours to days. However, the accuracy of the calculations that are there are typically the worst. There are obviously things that the engineer can do to improve that accuracy, but the primary thing that CFD is, is most powerful for is testing a large number of geometries, down-selecting the appropriate number of those that have the best potential, and then moving them on to the next step, which would be wind tunnel testing. Wind tunnel testing is also very complex because you're trying to model a ground plane that's not moving relative to the airspeed, but that actually requires you to have a rolling road that precisely matches the airspeed, which can be somewhat complex to do in, in a real car. The car is also not the full scale. So there are features there that make wind tunnel testing more complicated, but what you get in return for that is it's not really a true simulation. It's actually a physical test and that can give you the potential for improved accuracy down the line. The highest level of this would, of course, be on-track testing. On-track testing is the most expensive testing. It requires the most amount of lead time in an error development, but it has the highest potential for accuracy. That makes it very expensive. So objects that you actually see making it to the track, things that are being evaluated with FlowViz paint, for example, you know, during, during FP1, that is only a small, small fraction of the total number of designs that were actually evaluated in the aero development process and doing that in a cost efficient way is very important. One of the key ideas that I want to convey is the idea of a polar. And a polar is just a characteristic curve between something that's good and something that's potentially bad. So for example, if you have a, a front wing design that you're evaluating, a polar would be how does the aero bounds of the car change as a function of wing angle? If you change the wing angle, you know, two degrees, by how much does the aero balance change? And you might say, well, why do I care about that particular curve? And the reason why we care about this is if you bring a new aero development, so let's say you start off with your baseline model, you've created your new air development, and you think it's an improvement versus the current version. You actually have to develop that model's performance in relation to the same performance that you could get simply by changing the flap angle, because there's actually no benefit to introducing a new geometry, a new you know arrow strike or, or a flap, when you could get the same performance just by changing the flap angle of the existing design. So this is the uh, this is where the idea of beating the polar comes from. You have an original baseline polar from the current design, and then you create a secondary one based on the new design. And if the new design does not increase the performance in the right direction or not by enough for a given change in wing angle, it's actually not a viable solution. And therefore you wouldn't actually introduce it on the car. 
So this is kind of one of the ideas that that was impressed upon me by people smarter than me that I thought was definitely worth communicating. For the front wing, what you really care about is total downforce versus uh, aero balance. And for the rear wing, what you really care about is total downforce versus drag. These are the variables that we're playing with, and this is the design space that really determines which designs are, are viable and, and which aren't. There are many more levels to this, but just to give some insight into how you would do this, not only can you change the rear wing angle or the front wing angle, but you can add gurney flaps as well. And those have a different characteristic shift in how the drag changes versus downforce compared to just changing the flap angle. So that was just a, a little bit of insight into how air development works, both in safety and on the track. That will do it from us. Uh, I thought this was a great episode. We wanted to thank Mike for coming by again, uh, especially considering we're recording this after the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. It's been a very busy race weekend and we're very appreciative of his time. Yeah, it was it was great, Bryce. And, and 10 episodes done. Congratulations to us. Huh? That's pretty good. No, just thank you again to Mike for joining us. That was an awesome conversation. I think that spanned not only the tech side of vehicle dynamics, but just engineering and problem solving approaches that I think anybody can take away from this in addition to the tech that we talked about. I think we had two really cool conversations. All right, that'll do it from us. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>